The following message and support for AHLA is provided by Berkeley Research Group, a global consulting firm that helps organizations advance in the areas of disputes and investigations, corporate finance, and strategy and operations. BRG helps clients stay ahead of what's next. For more information, visit thinkbrg.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the American Health Law Association's Fraud and Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wetzel. Our episode today is the second in a series of podcasts we're recording about careers in health law, and in particular, fraud, abuse, and compliance. For those of you who don't know today's guest, Kim Brandt, you will absolutely want to after our interview. Kim's career is unmatched, unparalleled, and unrivaled, from serving in key leadership roles within the HHS Office of Inspector General, to leading the CMS Medicare Program Integrity Group, to handling healthcare oversight for the Senate Finance Committee, and serving as CMS Principal Deputy Administrator, Kim has done it all. She's played a key role in many of the legal, regulatory, and policy matters affecting the healthcare delivery system for decades. And since leaving CMS in December of 2020, Kim is now a partner in the Washington, D.C.-based policy firm Tarplin Downs & Young, where she advises clients on a wide range of healthcare regulatory and policy issues. And for our listeners who are active American Health Law Association members, you can catch a fuller interview with Kim as part of our September 2021 AHLA Connections Magazine uh, interview. Welcome, Kim. Um, but I, I thought, you know, maybe we could just get started from the beginning. You know, we spoke a couple of weeks ago and you shared some of your experiences in public service and a call that you heard and answered from an early age. So tell us what public service means to you, Kim. Sure. I, to me, public service is really being able to give back to your community in different ways. And for me, um, I started as a page in the U.S. Senate when I was in high school and had the very uh, good luck uh, to be able to go to the vice president's mansion while I was there when um, George W. Bush Sr., H.W. Bush, was president. And he gave us a little lecture on the porch while Barbara Bush served us cookies and lemonade about how there is no greater calling than public service and how being able to give to your country and give back to your fellow Americans is one of the greatest callings you could do. And it really imprinted on me. I was, you know, just in high school. I was 15 years old. I, you know, really thought, wow, that is an amazing calling. And so um, over the years, I ended up doing several internships on Capitol Hill, had the chance to see firsthand um, how people were giving back to their government. And so when I had the opportunity right out of law school to go into government, it seemed like the logical thing to do because I really wanted to help people. And my original plan of being a doctor didn't work out because I fainted the sight of blood. So here we are. <laughs> when you mentioned um, in uh, our upcoming Connections article, um, that one of your first jobs was as a candy striper. And I wonder if there's a patient-centric component to that and to the work you've done in health law that drives you and is a mission for you. You know, there really is to a certain extent. As I mentioned, um, I originally thought that I wanted to be a doctor because I really wanted to help people and I really like to find ways to, to be helpful. So I uh, got a, a position as a candy striper at our local hospital. And I really loved being able to work with the patients and bring them joy by bringing them flowers or bringing them just even, you know, treats or things like that. Um, and, and I think that, you know, really what that instilled on me and really kept through as I went to Capitol Hill and then ultimately HHS was the fact that, you know, the work that I was working on really impacted people in a meaningful, positive way. And that's really what I decided I wanted to do for my career. 
And, you know, one of the reasons we're uh, even talking today is a focus that we're, you know, trying to trying to, to move here on, uh, you know, health law careers and fraud and abuse and compliance careers and, 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 and the driving factors there. And so it sounds like, you know, the combination of the call to public service and the patient-centric mission has been so pivotal for you. Um, you know, I think it would be a real um, benefit, Kim, for our listeners to hear about your career path and just, you know, some snippets about each um, different role that you've had for folks who don't know you, you've had the great opportunity to see uh, the healthcare delivery system from so many different chairs and angles. And so, you know, I wonder if you might kind of walk us through what you've done on the health law side and some of the lessons learned from each position that you've held. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll try and be succinct about it. It's been an interesting <laughs> path and I've had a few different twists and turns. Um, but my first job straight out of college was actually on Capitol Hill working on the House side while I was going to grad school in D.C. And I worked for my local member of Congress and started out doing uh, flags, tours and passports, which was not health law related. But then fortuitously, um, the staff churn is pretty great on the Hill. And um, I moved up within a few months and started covering different issues, ultimately getting to do healthcare issues for him. And he was on the Energy and Commerce Committee, which was a fairly major player at the time, because in the mid 90s, which is when I was doing that, it was Hillary healthcare reform time. So I just fortuitously lucked into doing healthcare just as that whole issue was popping. I knew absolutely nothing about health law. I had really no interest in it at the time, um, but you know, started to really see firsthand how those health policies were really interesting and meaningful and kind of hit on all the things that we talked about that I really liked in terms of, wow, this makes a difference in people's lives. So ultimately um, I decided at that point that as soon as I was done with grad school, that I was going to go to law school. I had actually forgone law school, but doing um, the healthcare work made me realize okay, I really want to go to law school. And so that led me uh, to do a health law degree at DePaul College of Law and then ultimately come back to um, DC. But during law school, I was able to work at Rush Presbyterian Medical Center and Sidley in Austin, now Sidley, um, doing health law issues and in fact worked on Northwestern University's very first compliance program as a <clears throat> law school associate um, in law school, um, which was really awesome to kind of see the business side of healthcare, if you will. I then was lucky enough to get hired by HHS OIG in their Office of Counsel and worked with the fabulous uh, Larry Goldberg and many other talented people there. Um, and was able to really start seeing, um, okay, here's ways that you can really give good guidance and really help people to understand the rules and hopefully um, actually adhere to the rules. Um, worked on several healthcare fraud cases, which really showed me the underbelly of healthcare um, and some of the people who are really deliberately taking advantage of the system. But it also showed me how many people were trying really, really hard to do the right thing, which is what led me to actually um, help write and be the lead author on the physician compliance guidance, um, which was my first big thing that that I had published post-law school. So I was excited about that. And I spent time in a physician's office, my local physician's office back in Ohio for that, and realized firsthand that for that one physician and his staff of a whopping three people, they had no idea how to keep up with all these rules and regulations. And it was really tough for them. And what I also learned while being at the OIG was the OIG sort of had the mindset that CMS and 
um, the people who were doing the rules were a bunch of idiots who really didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. Sorry, OIG <laughs> friends. But there was this kind of mindset that, you know, basically, thank goodness the OIG is there to save the healthcare system from not only all these bad and non-compliant people, but also from the people who don't know the programs. So sort of where you sit is what you see. So then I moved to CMS and became the director of program integrity and saw the impacts firsthand of all of that um, abuse and sort of what that meant for the healthcare program as a whole and how that those dollars lost were dollars that we couldn't use to help our beneficiaries. So really worked very hard over the seven years I was there, um, you know, with the CMS people who were not quite as misguided as others might have thought they were. But instead, CMS, part of the problem was you had Congress, you had OIG, you had GAO, you had um, patient groups and outsiders, everybody telling you what to do. And to be honest, there was only so much that they could do to really respond to that because they were sort of getting pulled in multiple directions, if you will. So again, they were trying to do the right thing, but it wasn't always easy given all of those competing demands. But in, in reality, I was sort of like the chief compliance officer for CMS for those seven years. So it was about how it was that I could try and keep us compliant, particularly when we were receiving all these friendly letters from Senator Grassley telling us how much that we were not doing a good job all the time. So with that, um, I had a great career. And in 2010, I thought, it's enough. It's time for me to go out, do something else. And so I had a very brief five-month sojourn into private practice at Alston and Bird and um, loved it and was really happy working with providers. And once again, I had the perspective of, wow, these providers, they really are trying to do the right thing. But a lot of these government regulations are written so that it's very hard for them to understand, particularly the Stark Law. And there's a lot of issues there. So again, I thought, well, I wish I could do more. And then that led me to, in January of 11, uh, going over to the Senate Finance Committee. I didn't mean to leave private practice so quickly, but the chance to go and be the person who wrote the letters to CMS that they had to respond to after I had to respond to them for so long was really too good an opportunity to pass up. And so for seven years, um, almost, I went back to the finance committee, worked there as Senator Hatch's chief oversight counsel, um, and then running the Medicaid portfolio there for much of that time. And what I realized then was that, you know, Congress also has a really important role. They're trying to do things that they think are in the best interest of their constituents. And because I was now in a much more senior role than I was on the House side, I also realized that they had the impact or the ability to really impact in a meaningful way the policies. And they could make policies that hopefully would be better so that CMS could write better laws, so that OIG would have better authorities to enact in. And it really kind of all came full circle, if you will. And then that led to finally, sorry, I told you it was a twisty road. <laughs> um, finally, me coming back in August of 2017 to CMS when I had the very good opportunity to be asked to be Seema Verma's deputy and basically run the day-to-day -day operations at CMS in addition to doing cross-cutting policy across the agency for her, which honestly was probably the capstone of everything that I had done in government because it really allowed me to take all of those different perspectives and everything I had learned and bring it to bear in a meaningful, good way so that I was able to help lead things like interoperability and the new interoperability rules that we issued at CMS. I was very thrilled to be part of the team and leading the technical team that read did the Stark regulations because that had been something I cared about for a long time and being able to put those into plain English and working with the technical team to really make those changes was a huge thing. 
And then also just being able to work on a lot of the other good and sort of practical um, things that we did across the board at CMS to make it so that it was easier for healthcare providers to get data and understand data and things like that. It really just kind of felt like a, a good way to bring all of my skills and everything I learned all together. So that's my path, Matt. <laughs> Kim, that what a what a story. And and really, I mean, you know, what I what I heard you say in telling your path was you know, that your, your interest is in understanding your stakeholders and yes. what their needs were, educating stakeholders on different compliance, legal, regulatory issues, um, recognizing that the different players in the different parts of the healthcare delivery system tend to have, you know, positive missions and positive goals for their actions and bringing folks together so that they understand what other parts of the system are doing. And you said something just now, and you say it in the, in the interview, uh, in the connections article, um, uh, where you sit is what you see. I love that expression. It's my new favorite expression. Tell me, <laughs> tell me about that and, and, and what that means to you. So I think it's really true. I mean, every single place that I worked, I really, you know, where I was working gave me a whole new perspective on things. And I think that, you know, one of the challenges many of us have in our careers is that we don't often get to see those different perspectives. I've been very lucky. I've worked on the House and the Senate side. I've worked in the executive branch, I, the legislative branch. I've worked with stakeholders. And I think each of those perspectives brings something new to the table. And to your point, one of my big takeaways from my government career was I really wanted to be able to do things in a positive, meaningful way that could help the people impacted. And it's the stakeholders, it's the patients, it's sometimes even the other regulators. And honestly, to be able to do that, you really have to sit in those different chairs and really understand their perspective. And without that, I think it's really hard to be able to make meaningful changes or to really be able to um, think thoughtfully about what good solutions are. So that's why I really like where you sit is what you see, because that perspective, it's very jaundiced by where you sit, basically. Basically. Absolutely. No, I, I think that's great. And tell us um, one way in which your perspective changed at OIG, uh, on the Hill, and at CMS. Sure. I think at OIG, there was a presumption that there were people that were just out there to get the government and that everybody kind of had a nefarious mindset. And again, you have to keep in mind, these are people who their job is to root out the worst of the worst healthcare fraud. So they're, I, I mean, they, they no see the bad cases. They, they see, see the, the bad, bad cases. So yep. again, where they sit is what they see. So they're very much of the opinion that CMS is rather ill-equipped to handle what they do and they don't necessarily understand why they aren't more vigilant on a lot of their anti-fraud things. And also I think that they were very much of the opinion that the healthcare community as a whole doesn't really care that much about compliance or education. I truly believe that until I left OIG. And then again, when I went to CMS, what I realized was CMS, number one, cares about their beneficiaries. The people at CMS are some, and OIG too, but these are some of the most dedicated public servants that I have ever Ever known. I mean, the people at CMS really are trying to, you know, write rules that hopefully make sense, that protect beneficiaries, that give them, you know, the best possible um, access to care, but also that hopefully are going to make it so that the providers have the tools they need to provide for those beneficiaries. And that's really important to them. They care about that a lot. But I think CMS also gets very frustrated because they've got, again, these oversight people on the Hill and at the uh, OIG and others that are constantly looking 
looking over their shoulder. So then going to the Congress, I thought, well, gosh, all they do is sit there and pick on the poor administration all day. But what I realized is that they feel like they have a duty, um, much like the OIG feels they have a duty to sort of protect the programs. And so part of that is they want to make sure and make laws and make policies that hopefully not only will help the beneficiaries who are ultimately their constituents, but also to make sure that they are providing good to tools to help provide the best care possible. And that's a big part of what they think when they legislate. So again, with each of these perspectives, you know, sort of the, but ultimately what Congress, I did learn from them is that Congress is above everybody and they really don't care what anybody else thinks. So they, you know, at the end of the day, OAG, CMS, everybody else does whatever Congress tells them to do. So the the thing is being at Congress is probably the best job ever because you have the biggest bully pulpit and the biggest authority, but yet by the same token, they feel that responsibility because they feel accountable to that, to their constituents who are both the providers and the beneficiaries. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, switching gears just a little bit, you know, one of the things we'd like to uh, move forward here with our, our podcast series is careers in health law. So we've heard where you sit is what you see. But one of the things I think readers will find when they read the Connections article next month is um, your passion for mentoring. You've worked with some of the best health lawyers out there, Kim, um, and many high profile policymakers, you know, people uh, who are, you know, uh, names that, you know, uh, 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 everyone knows in the American public. Um, and, and you've worked with folks who are legends of the bar. Tell tell us who are your mentors and what have you learned from them? It's a great question. I would be remiss if I didn't start with Larry Goldberg, who many of you know, used to be the principal deputy inspector at the OIG. Uh, he was my first boss at the Office of Inspector General, is still the number one person I go to whenever I need advice on anything. Great. And um, he was just a great mentor because he really showed me how to treat the people that work for you um, with respect and dignity, but also to be a resource and mentor them and help them to understand how to be a better lawyer and a better person to a certain extent. And what he taught me in terms of his management style and his legal style early on, I I credit for a lot of my success in my career because just the way that he was um, a very thoughtful, but, um, you know, direct, Um, he held you accountable. Um, He would give me grief anytime he found a typo, um, which, you know, I went for almost six months without a typo under his watch. And then when I had one, he was very quick to let me know it. But, you know, he held it to a high standard, but he also was really good about helping you rise to that next level and support you. Um, I think another person who I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, mention was Howard Young, who also worked with me at the OIG. And um, Howard was the first attorney boss that I had. And he really taught me how to write succinctly and to really think about analyzing fact patterns in a really good, um, productive way. And that skill, even though I'm not necessarily a practicing lawyer anymore, it has helped me invaluably through the years. And I think Howard was one of the first people to really help me think about those different perspectives, as you will. He was really good about looking at it from multiple perspectives. What's the provider perspective? What's the patient perspective? And then, okay, how are we going to go after the bad guys? Um, So that was really good as well. And then lastly, um, you know, I, I think that Honestly, it's kind of a combination of people, but um, I really did learn a lot from a couple of CMS administrators that I've worked with, including Tom Scully. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with Tom in multiple capacities. I worked 
for him briefly when I first started at CMS and then um, have worked with him on multiple things since. He's one of the smartest policy people I've ever had the pleasure of interacting with. His ability to really foresee what's happening in the healthcare industry and thinking about how that impacts all the stakeholders in the system and how that impacts both the legislative and regulatory side, it's truly impressive. And it really has helped me to always keep that perspective in mind. And then the last person I mentioned is Mark McClellan. Mm -hmm. Um, Dr. McClellan was the first real administrator I worked for. Again, Scully was there just briefly at the beginning of my tenure, but for much of my first uh, career at CMS, uh, Dr. McClellan was the administrator. And his just brilliance in healthcare policy, the way he executed um, the development of the Medicare Modernization Act and just sort of how he approached things. It taught me so much that I realized that I was able to draw on when I came back in 2017, several years later. But also what I loved about it was he always wanted to know what everyone thought, no matter what level they were at. I was a junior person at CMS, junior, senior executive when he was there, but yet he always took the time in a meeting to be like, well, Kim, what do you think? And what are your views? And it really impacted me because it was a great way to sort of um, see how a leader can really bring in and bring out the best in all of the people who work yeah. for them. Absolutely. No, that's great, Kim. Um, when we talked a couple of weeks ago, uh, one thing uh, thing you mentioned, we were talking about sort of advice for younger lawyers and, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of, you know, what are some tips and recommendations you'd make at this end of your career to, you know, folks who are just kind of starting out. And you mentioned networking. Tell me about networking. So networking is my superpower, I like to say. Um, I And most of you who know me know that I love to talk to people. I love to meet people. And I try to be really good at keeping in touch. And I will say that the biggest thing that has helped me in my career has been a wide network. Um, I've been so grateful over the years to have people like Katie McDermott and um, you know other senior attorneys, Elizabeth Carter Thompson and others who were people that were kind to me early on in my career who I kept in touch with and who were kind enough to keep in touch with me and who really helped um, to be able to grow my network and give me those resources so that when I had big decisions to make or when I had things that I wasn't quite sure how to approach, I could go to and they could give me really good advice. As I mentioned, Larry Goldberg is perhaps my biggest network and mentor because it was really uh, through him that I was able to get into all this. But I think that, you know, the importance of a big network is that then you always have a whole safety net of people that you can go to for any issue. And I I find that particularly now that I'm out of government, I appreciate that network more than ever because I come up with issues on a daily basis that frankly, I don't always know what the answer is. And having that network is a great way to be able to bring it in. But there are also people who are going to help you move up and grow in your career. And that is so critically important. So my number one advice to everybody is grow a good network and maintain it. It takes a lot of effort. It is not easy because you kind of have to, it's like a garden, you have to tend it to have it grow. Um, but it, it's honestly, having a wide and diverse network is one of the best things that you can have for your career. That's such great advice, Kim. And um, I, I certainly second that uh, from my own experience. Uh, and uh, and you named a couple of names in there that are, you know, mentors of mine as well. So it's it's nice to know that, um, you know, there's a full circle network uh, in, in our world here. And, um, you know, I thought maybe one thing we could do, Kim, so that, you know, we can talk a little substance on the health on the health <laughs> law side is maybe sure. just do a quick round robin of a couple of hot button topics right now and just get your immediate reaction to it and your thoughts if that's okay with you 
uh, perfectly fine. I, I'm excited. Feels okay. like a, Jeopard, a Jeopardy round or something. So yeah, exactly. Excited. Exactly. All right. So expanding um, telehealth and telemedicine coverage. What are your thoughts? Um, absolutely think it needs to be done. I, I think that the one caveat to that is from a program integrity perspective, there does need to still be periodic check-ins to establish that relationship between the patient and the, the provider. But otherwise, I think the opening and expansion of telehealth is perhaps the best thing and the thing I'm most proud of that we did at CMS during the pandemic. It has absolutely changed the whole game in terms of ability to provide care, particularly in underserved areas and in particular for mental health. Um, Mental and behavioral health have benefited a lot from this. So I hope it stays. That's great. That's great. Um, the value-based uh, regs under Stark and under uh, the anti-kickback statute, your thoughts? Well, obviously they're brilliant, but anyway, um, but no, I, I, I do think I'm super proud of the work that both teams did on those. And honestly, I hope that the provider community and the legal community also feels that those were positive, um, impactful changes. Um, the, you know, almost three years that the team spent working on those to make them understandable, more relevant, and hopefully less cumbersome for the provider community, I think really does show in the final regulations. Um, they're not perfect because nothing ever is. I realize there's still tweaks and changes to be made. But for me, that was the culmination of an almost 10-year journey of trying to make changes to the Stark uh, regulations or the underlying Stark law so that hopefully we could get to a place where there was more plain English definitions, better assumptions of how to do care coordination, and the ability to really give people the um, pathway forward on value-based care without fear of any sort of retribution or legal action. Uh, and then finally, um, price transparency for hospitals and providers. So that one I'm watching with great interest because I think a lot of it depends on how serious CMS gets about penalties. Um, as you know, they have proposed tougher penalties in their most recent round of rulemaking. Um, I think that that is necessary. And if they don't do that, I think that unfortunately, I don't know that price transparency will ever get to where Congress or uh, the original executive branch sponsors of this uh, want it to get. Um, as it stands right now, I, I think hospitals are a mixed bag in terms of their compliance with that. And in order to get to true compliance, it's going to need to be enforced more readily, but they're also going to have to be able to have things posted in ways that people can actually read it. I've seen some of the things that hospitals have posted that allegedly comply with the price transparency and I can't understand them. And I feel like I have a fairly good understanding of how to read that kind of stuff. So I, I do think it's, it's a two-pronged approach. It's going to be greater enforcement, but it's also going to be a greater um, education effort across the board to make it so that hopefully whatever they post is going to be understandable to the patients who actually would benefit it. Because I can tell you the average patient probably isn't going to understand most of what's up there right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kim, thank you so much for the time today from your public service mission to your mission to educate and connect stakeholders, networking, mentoring. Uh, and, uh, and of course, my favorite expression, where you sit is what you see. Um, really, we appreciate you uh, taking the time to join us. Appreciate it. No problem. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Kim. Thank you to the Berkeley Research Group, our AHLA Fraud and Abuse podcast sponsor, and a special thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'll be back next month with another edition of the Fraud and Abuse podcast. Thanks so much.
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.